0: Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Thanks for joining me on the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monte Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. If you heard our program from last week, then you know we studied the first chapter of a short Old Testament book called Jonah. In that chapter, we learned that a prophet named Jonah was called to go to the ancient Assyrian city of Nineveh, the capital of that once great empire. He was told to preach to the people there, a message of repentance straight from God. Now, out of resentment, he avoided that call to prophesy, and instead he went the opposite direction toward Tarshish. On his way, on a small ship, he encountered a great storm, and the sailors suspected that somebody, somebody on the ship must not be right with their local deity. Eventually, they discovered that it is Jonah, and that Jonah's deity is not just some local deity, not just some small god, but is the god, the one and only who is the master of the earth and the sea, who has control over all things natural and spiritual. Eventually, Jonah agrees to jump off the side of the ship to save everybody else. In the process, those sailors learn a great deal about God, and the text says in chapter 1, verse 16, that the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now the chapter ends by saying that the Lord appointed a great fish. Now whether it was a fish or a whale is it doesn't matter. The original Hebrew word there is inclusive of all great sea creatures, so it could have been a fish, it could have been a whale, or it could have just been a miraculous entity of some kind that God appointed to go swallow up. Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of that being for three days and three nights. And that's where we left Jonah last week. So let's pick up here in chapter two and see the prayer that he offers to God from the stomach of the fish. It says in verse two, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Thou didst hear my voice "'For thou hast cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, "'and the current engulfed me, and the breakers and billows passed over me. "'So I said, I have been expelled from thy sight. "'Nevertheless, I will look again toward thy holy temple. "'Water encompassed me to the point of death. "'The great deep engulfed me. "'Weeds were wrapped round my head. "'I descended to the roots of the mountains. "'The earth with its bars was around me forever.' I'll stop there for just a second. So Jonah admits that he felt like when he first went on the water that that was that. He felt like his life was over, that he was going to drown for sure, and that that was it. And I think there's something really sad and sobering about this, that Jonah knew what he did was wrong. He should not have run away from God. When God told him to get up and go to Nineveh, he should have gotten up and gone to Nineveh. Instead of arguing with God or avoiding God, instead of going the opposite direction of where he was called, he should have obeyed. And here, finally, with death facing him, with the waters all around him, with water creeping up his nostrils and the weight of the water against his skin, only then did he finally realize the gravity and enormity of what he had done. And it is sad that it takes people to that point before they finally realize the right thing to do. You know, we talk about the term hitting rock bottom. I don't know if Jonah at any point actually hit rock bottom, literally speaking. I doubt very much that he ended up literally hitting the bottom of the sea here. But this is as close as one can come to rock bottom in a physical sense. He had to hit rock bottom before he finally humbled himself before God. You know, What's really sad about that is that he had his entire life before this to do the right thing. And he had plenty of time in the process of avoiding and disobeying God that he could have turned around and done the right thing. At any point in the process of walking toward the shore he could have turned around. At any point in the process of paying for his ticket or paying for his fare across the sea, however it is he would have done that, he could have stopped and turned around. And even with the shoreline, just off in the distance, on the horizon line, he still could have turned around. As inconvenient as that might have been for the sailors, he still could have turned around. And it's only now... When he believes he's at the end, that he realizes, I should have done what God said. So it goes on to say in Jonah 2, verse 6, in the second half of that verse, But thou hast brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to thee into thy holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness but I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation, salvation is from the Lord. So in verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now let's just try to realize what it took for Jonah to finally humble himself and accept that he was unable to hide from God. To start with in the first chapter, we find that God himself had spoken directly to Jonah. Now, That's an amazing thing, and one would think that if he had God speaking directly to him, that would provide plenty of motivation to serve him. But no, Jonah runs from God and shirks his responsibility. Well, then certainly a great storm on the sea should be enough, right? But it wasn't Jonah who was praying on the deck of that tossed ship. An obvious display of the power of God still wasn't enough to humble Jonah and teach him a lesson. Rather, it takes one final miracle to convince Jonah to follow God, that great sea creature swallowing up at the last moment. And it is at this point that we find Jonah praying when it was almost too late for him to pray. It would seem at this point that Jonah is truly repentant of his previous attitude and rejection of God's will. And when one considers the alternative, that is, drowning in the sea, alone and out of touch with God, getting stuck inside the belly of a giant fish probably would seem like a fine spot. Jonah realizes this and finally gives God the credit for allowing him to live. Jonah knows that God could have let him die. He could have just let him drown in his rebellion and sin. But this fish gave him the chance and the opportunity to pray to God to reflect upon his life and re-examine his priorities. God gives all of us the same opportunities, not literally in the form of a giant fish that swallows us up, but we read in 1 Timothy 2, verse 4 in the New Testament that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And God could very easily let all of us die in our sins. He could, like Jonah, just let us drown in our sorrows and our transgressions, never having any hope. But he loves us too much for that. He's given us the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1, verse 16. He's given us his son who died and was made a sacrifice for our sins. He's given us the strength to overcome our sins and live righteously, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. We have all the tools, as it says in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, for everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. That's what's given to us in the word. There is absolutely no opportunity, no provision, no chance that God has not tried to afford us. All we have to do is accept his helping hand. As Jonah's story continues... We find that Jonah's repentance may not have been as sincere as we originally thought. He becomes angry with God because of the mercy that's shown to Nineveh, seemingly forgetful of the mercy that was shown to him and the sea. And this is a really important application to make here. We sometimes only humble ourselves and pray to God when we need Him, but we forget about His mercy and His love when we don't need Him anymore. It took the most amazing, miraculous, and miserable circumstances for Jonah to finally humble himself. Look again at chapter 2, verse 7. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to thee. While I was fainting away, I remembered God? Jonah could never honestly say, Even when I'm not fainting away, even when I don't think I need you, even when life is going well, I still remember you, God. (laughs) And suddenly, when all has been said in Nineveh, Jonah goes right back to resenting God, just like in the beginning of the story. We need to remember that instead of only praying to God when we're drowning, metaphorically, or when we need something from Him, or when we feel guilty about a sin and want to suddenly feel better about ourselves— Why not pray to God always? In times of wealth, pray to God for strength when adversity comes. In times of poverty, pray to God for spiritual health in spite of physical ailments. There is something that needs prayer. Always some person out there who could use your petitions to God. There is never a time that God does not want to hear us. There's never a time that we don't need to pray. And Jonah could say of his life... It was only when I was most desperate for God that I finally came to him. Now, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days' walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. So there are two things I want to notice about these verses. First of all, the message of God was the same as it was the first time. God didn't compromise the message just because Jonah didn't like it. He didn't soften it or harden it based on Jonah's preferences. It was the same message as it was the first time. I really like that part of the story, by the way. I like the idea that God asks Jonah to do something, Jonah goes out of his way to avoid it, and when he finally comes back to God, God issues the exact same orders as before. The exact same orders. God says this of himself in Isaiah 55, verse 11. So shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth, It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God refuses to let human stubbornness interfere with his will. Whatever the Lord commands, whatever the Lord desires, and whatever words he may speak, these will always triumph. And God's will is always done in heaven and on earth. The second point, is that Jonah did not need to provide his own wisdom in the matter of Nineveh. Instead, God said he would tell Jonah what to speak. We can infer then that there was nothing else Jonah could have or should have added to the message. We need to apply that same lesson to our own treatment of the Bible. That what the Bible says is enough. We don't need to add to it. We certainly shouldn't take away from it. That what God commands of us, what God expects of us, and what God has revealed to us, that's enough. And there's no wisdom or pattern that's better than or improved upon God's own gospel. Moving on in the story, we're not entirely sure how long Jonah was preaching in Nineveh. It must have been less than 40 days because he prophesies that it will be in 40 days that Nineveh will be overthrown. And it took him an entire day to walk through only a third of the city. I believe that's what he means by Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. I believe it would have taken you three days to walk from one end of the city to the other end of the city. From the fourth chapter, we read that there were at least 120,000 children in Nineveh, who God describes as not yet old enough to know their left hand from their right. And with this number, assuming that the children would be about a fifth of the total population, we could say that the total population of Nineveh might be around 600,000 men, women, and children. It wasn't just a great city, but according to verse 3, it was an exceedingly great city. Notice the content of Jonah's preaching. He speaks of impending doom and destruction and the judgment of God upon the entire city. Today a message like that would be terribly criticized by many people of the world. Most denominations want to hear happy preaching or feel-good sermons. Nobody today wants to listen to a sermon on hell, or certainly not on burning plagues from God. But this message was exactly what God wanted Jonah to preach word for word in all of its violence and descriptiveness because that is the message that Nineveh needed to hear. Do we sometimes water the word down? Do we feel ashamed of the gospel on occasion when certain parts of the gospel are inconvenient? When a friend or a co-worker is talking about a subject like homosexuality, or adultery as if they're good things, how do we respond to that? When the time comes to proclaim the truth on something that is hard to preach and hard to hear, do we get quiet and shrink back? Sometimes God's message is a message of doom. But just look at the results. According to verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them, In less than 40 days, the people heard the message loud and clear and seemed to positively respond to it from the greatest of them to the very least of them. Verse 6, "...when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes." And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. Notice a couple of quick practical applications from this part of the story. First, their repentance was immediately. There was no 12-step program for repentance in this case. They saw the problem, they knew what the consequences would be, they heard the solution, and they acted. And second, the repentance is top to bottom. Everybody from peddlers and vagrants to the wealthiest, and even the king himself, repents from their sins and makes vows before God. No man... Nobody is exempt from the responsibility to God, no matter the rank or the status. Just like Paul makes mention of in Galatians 2, verse 6, God shows no partiality when it comes to rank. As a quick historical aside, I want to point out that it is likely that the king here, the emperor in Assyria at the time, was a man named Adad-Nirari the Third. He reigned from around 808 or 811 BC to 783 BC and he was considered a great reformer. The problem was that his father was a very weak king and Adad-Nirari was very young when he became king also and it led to a several decades long decline in Assyria's power, which probably made it possible for the Israelite king Jeroboam II to regain a lot of the territory that Israel had lost In the preceding years. So, with our last few minutes, let's go to the last part of the story. When God saw their deeds in chapter 3, verse 10, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. But chapter 4 goes on to say, It greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. We'll stop there for just a second. Isn't it interesting that in almost every other conceivable situation, This would be a really good statement. I mean, the fact that God is a compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and a God who relents concerning calamity, don't we think of that as being a good thing? Not for Jonah. Jonah was too consumed with bitterness for Assyria. He didn't see the people. He didn't see the souls. He didn't see the fact that they were lost, that they were sinners that they were ignorant and naive, that they were idol worshippers who did not know the truth of God. He didn't see that. All he saw was the most powerful empire in the world at the time and a threat to Israel. That's it. It says in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. He would rather be dead than live in a world where Nineveh was granted mercy and compassion. He would rather be dead than see the day where Assyria would rise again from its current problems and current affairs and take over Israel. And that's exactly what happened eventually. When Israel could be tolerated by God no longer because of its own sins and its own idolatry, God appointed Assyria as its judge. And Assyria invaded And Assyria was brutal. And Assyria left nobody behind. They captured Israel and took her people away as slaves and relocated them around its empire. Maybe Jonah knew that. I don't know. Maybe Jonah had some sense that that was the direction Israel was going. That if they continued down their own path of sin, judgment would come upon them. And he didn't want to live in a world where those events unfolded in that way. Just kill me now. But the Lord said in verse 4, Do you have good reason to be angry? What a question. Did you notice that God didn't confront any of the specific things that Jonah brought out? All God does is just ask him, Do you have a good reason to be angry? Maybe it's a question we ought to ask ourselves too when we become frustrated with life. When we want to sulk and complain and whine, God says, do you have a good reason to be angry? Before his story is over, Jonah needs to learn an object lesson from God. He leaves the city and finds a vantage point, hoping that from there, maybe, maybe he'll be able to see a serious judgment if God should change his mind and bring that judgment that he he wanted so badly to happen. And while he's there watching from a distance, a giant plant appears over him. It miraculously goes from the ground and provides shade for him. Verse 6 says, and I believe there is no irony or hyperbole intended here, but verse 6 says, Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. It's the little things in life, right? But verse 7 says, God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and the worm attacked the plant, and it withered. And it came about when the sun came up, the God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged God with all his soul to die saying, death is better to me than life. Now here's the lesson. God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And Jonah, as if he was a five-year-old child said, I have good reason to be angry, even to the point of death. But the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant. For which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? A city with hundreds of thousands of people, as well as the animal life that's there. Jonah cared more about a plant, a plant that was easy come, easy go, He cared more about a plant that was eaten by worms than people, people who changed their ways, who learned about God, who had salvation brought to them, judgment removed from their entire city. And Jonah cared more about the plant than all the people. And I suppose the last thing I'll say about the story of Jonah is, I'm sure glad that Jonah is not God. And I'm sure glad I'm not God. And I'm glad you're not God. I'm glad that God is God. Because we will never fully comprehend the depth of His mercy and the enormity of His great love with which He loves us. Even the sinners out there, you still have a chance to change. God preaches to you also through His gospel today. And like Nineveh, you have an opportunity to repent of your sins. Be like Nineveh. Take the opportunity. Take the opportunity and become what God wants you to be, which is saved. A saint whose eternal home is heaven. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montavistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Montavista Vista Church of Christ. We're located at twenty-two hundred two. North 40th Street. We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 9.30 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Monta Vista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montavistacoc.com. Amen.